good afternoon. Um, I'm Hussein Haqqani, uh, Director for South and Central Asia here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, welcome to Hudson. Uh, thank you all for making the time to come for this uh, event. I have the pleasure of welcoming uh, Ambassador uh, uh, Kariawasam uh, of Sri Lanka. Uh, I, of course, have personal ties to Sri Lanka going back many years uh, when some of you were probably not even born. The younger crowd I'm referring to, not everybody. Um, I served as Pakistan's ambassador to Sri Lanka uh, in 1992-93. Uh, and I have very fond memories of Sri Lanka. Uh, it's not just the beaches, it's just uh, uh, not the coconut palm trees, uh, it's not just the tea gardens, it's also the people uh, who uh, are often recognized by those who get to know them as being amongst the uh, warmest and uh, most likable people. Uh, and that does not apply to you right now until you've spoken, Ambassador Karyavasam. We'll, 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 we'll determine your likability after you've, uh, after you addressed us. Now, that was a joke. I know Ambassador very well, and he's a dear friend. And it's a pleasure for me to have him here today. Uh, Sri Lanka is fast emerging as an economic and political powerhouse, disproportionate to its size, uh, both in geographic terms as in, and in population. Uh, since the uh, war came to an end in 2009, the Sri Lankan government has focused on good governance, sustainable development, and greater integration across the nation. Uh, Sri Lanka's geostrategic location has helped it emerge as a critical stakeholder in the Indo-Pacific region. 75% of Colombo port volumes are transshipments from India and over 85% of China's energy imports from the Middle East and mineral resources from Africa transit through Sri Lanka. So the two large Asian giants who have the fastest uh, growing economies in the world right now, contributing significantly to uh, global economic growth, both of them are transshipped through Sri Lanka significantly. More than 60,000 ships ply this route annually, carrying two-thirds of the world's oil and half of all container shipments. Uh, KPMG has estimated that freight industry in the Asia-Pacific is set to grow at 12% each year, and the port of Colombo is already seeing around a 15% annual growth rate in uh, transshipments. Now, we also know that Sri Lanka has gone through civil war and tremendous violence. In fact, the time that I spent in Sri Lanka was one of uh, of a uh, 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 lot of security checkpoints everywhere, uh, uh, a few suicide bombings every now and then by the uh, uh, LTTE, which uh, thank God is no longer there. Uh, the war has ended, but post-conflict issues remain. There are many in this town and elsewhere who are very concerned about the integration of communities hurt by the war. And this issue impinges on how the world views Sri Lanka. Uh, there are concerns that there might be an outbreak of conflict again if the integration of communities does not take place and if people are not seen to be treated equally and justly. Uh, so it would be good to hear from the ambassador on that front as well. We appreciate, everybody appreciates the economic achievements and accomplishments of Sri Lanka and the success they have accomplished uh, since the end of the war, but the circumstances of the end of the war will remain controversial for quite some time to come, and we cannot completely ignore that either. Uh, 
Now, I would like to invite uh, Ambassador Prashad uh, Kriyavasam to speak. Uh, let me just introduce him to you. Uh, he's a career diplomat who joined the Sri Lanka Foreign Service in 1981. He has held diplomatic assignments in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, Washington, D.C., Geneva, New York, and most recently as High Commissioner of Sri Lanka to India, Bhutan, and Afghanistan. Ambassador Karyawasam was also elected as the President of the Council of the International Organization for, uh, for Migration for the years 2001 and 2002 at its 50th anniversary session and served as the Chair of the Assembly for Global Development, of the Global Development Network based in New Delhi uh, from 2012 to 2013. So Ambassador, the floor is all yours. Ambassador Hakani, thanks for that generous introduction of my country. And of course, give me a challenge as well. But you have picked some of the some of the topics that I want to speak. You have already advanced the topic very well. Um, I want to thank Hudson Institute for giving me this opportunity to talk on this subject at this uh, juncture. Uh, it's a very uh, important period for this country and for the world. We have a new administration in U.S. And uh, there is very important role for us to get engaged. And in fact, last week we had uh, two quarters, two congressional delegations visiting Sri Lanka, manifesting the interest of the Congress in Sri Lanka. In addressing this timely subject, Sri Lanka is a growing hub in the Indo-Pacific. First, let me briefly present context and background to my island home in relation to the topic. Since time immemorial, Sri Lanka has been known to the travelers of the ancient world as a hub in the Indian Ocean. The identified country by many names like Lanka, Serendip, Ceylon. In our recorded history of over 2,500 years, it is stated that visitors like th 13th century Muslim scholar Ibn Battuta, 4th century Chinese Buddhist pilgrim Fahian, have described the glorious past of my country vividly. During the colonial era since 1505, the Portuguese, the Dutch, and then British have held a foothold in Sri Lanka, primarily due to its geographic location in the oceans of the world. Contacts with the United States started when American merchant ships from New England called at Gold Harbor around the same time that the new American Republic adopted its constitution in 1789. All those visitors recognized my country as an excellent trading hub and reckoned that our land was endowed with precious gems, spices, and other bounties of nature that included elephants and exotic flora. Given the importance and popularity of the location, cartographers of the ancient world depicted Sri Lanka much larger than its actual size. The map, map of Ptolemy in the first century AD is probably the best example. Sri Lanka neither existed nor evolved in isolation in the ancient world. It is recorded that the Sri Lankan kings sent envoys to the royal court of Roman Emperor Augustus. People of Sri Lanka 
as islanders since ancient times were influenced by several waves of external interactions that led to exchange not only of goods but ideas and knowledge with travelers and traders passing through or visitors from lands close and far some traders and visitors settled in sri lanka making our country their home as a result sri lanka today is a multiethnic multicultural and multireligious nation buddhism has thrived in sri lanka since buddhist teachings were introduced to the country in the 3rd century bc by the emissaries of emperor ashoka of india arab traders brought with them the teachings of prophet muhammad the symbol of the cross found in the ancient city of anuradhapura points to the existence of christians perhaps persian christians even before the arrival of colonial powers hinduism hindu beliefs and customs have contributed to sri lankan culture very significantly and has become ingrained in everyday life of people it is not only those who identify themselves as hindus who practice hindu customs in our country for example almost all buddhist temples have images of hindu gods and goddesses installed in them the hinduism practice in sri lanka has evolved in close interaction with south india an interesting snippet with respect to hinduism in our country is that bronze statues of hindu gods and goddesses discovered in the ancient city of pronarva crafted by local artisans and bronze casters are considered to be the best in the world the beauty and wealth of the island had caught the imagination of arab writers to such an extent that the land they refer to as serendip was incorporated in stories of sinbad the sailor they believe that adam lived there when he was exiled from paradise even today a holy mountain in sri lanka 7300 feet in height called siripada or adam's peak is venerated by buddhists hindus muslims and christians a depression at the summit that resembles a footprint of this spear shaped mountain is considered by muslims as adams the same foot footprint is venerated by buddhists as that of buddha hindu as that of shiva and by christians as that of saint thomas the apostle let me now turn to modern era enough history in our world <laughs> seas cover 7/10 of the planet 6/10 60% of our borders are sea coast 9 out of 10 people 90% on the planet live in coastal region 90% around 90% of the world trade is carried by international shipping and seaborne trade continues to expand bringing benefits for consumers across the world through competitive freight costs and growing efficiency of the modes of shipping we are all aware that the ocean is a bountiful resource not only for fish but for energy and minerals which require well managed rule based exploitation therefore it is not fortuitous that sri lanka provided leadership and the united nations to evolve love the sea convention and now the concept of blue economy is evolving for upholding sustainable development of the oceans to benefit all 
in particular littoral countries. It is clear that the world needs peaceful oceans to sustain its benefits in the ever-growing blue economy. Sri Lanka has the benefit of the vast ocean around us over which we enjoy exclusive economic rights. The country is situated in the world's busiest shipping lane. This busy eastward shipping route passes just six nautical miles south of Sri Lanka, carrying two-thirds of global petroleum supplies, half of all containerized, all containerized cargo. Uh, I think Ambassador Hakani mentioned this. This is, the both, this is both an opportunity and a challenge for our nation. On my arrival in Washington, when I visited headquarters of National Geographic, I observed two giant 18th century maps, one depicting Occident, the other the Orient. You can see that in headquarters. And right in the middle of Orient, staring at me, was Sri Lanka. The strategic location of Sri Lanka on the, in the Indian Ocean is a geographical feature that made Sri Lanka a maritime hub since ancient times, which led to Ptolemy featuring Sri Lanka several times larger than its actual size. And now, having achieved peace and stability in our country, we are keen and able to reassume an important role as a hub in the Indian Ocean and its extended terrain in the Pacific. After five centuries, world economic power is once again shifting towards Asia. It is estimated that by 2030, Asia will surpass other regions on GDP, population, military spending, investment in technology, and even in innovation. These are the estimates. Meanwhile, United States, this country, will remain a predominant power in the Indo-Pacific with its economic and business outreach, as well as its unparalleled naval strength across the seas of the world. We are eager to work with maritime powers of the Indian Ocean and beyond to make our oceans secure for unimpeded commerce and for peaceful navigation. Sri Lanka takes the security of sea lanes and maritime security in the oceans around us seriously. We are determined, as it is in our interest, to work with maritime powers of the region and beyond to ensure that the Indian Ocean is conflict-free. We now welcome, in fact, increasing number of Navy vessels of major sea powers who regularly call at our ports on goodwill visits. In fact, just now, as I speak, U.S. Pacific Fleet and its transport vessel USNS Fall River is at Hambantota port on the first ever Pacific Partnership goodwill mission to Sri Lanka from 6th to 18th March in partnership with Sri Lanka Navy. We are eager to work in partnership with countries in the region and beyond on humanitarian, disaster, humanitarian and disaster relief operations in the region. We are committed to prevent seaborne conflict and to combat, 
combat terrorism and piracy and assist in harmonizing geostrategic complexities in the Indian Ocean around us. In our view, an ocean-based security architecture can be built to ensure a peaceful Indian Ocean, which can be extended towards the Indo-Pacific in time to come. In fact, Prime Minister of Sri Lanka recently stated, and I quote him, verbatim, I quote, we must commit ourselves to an order based on rights of all states to the freedom of navigation, the unimpeded lawful maritime commerce and overflight. Our own futures and the futures of our extra-regional partners are therefore heavily invested on how strategic securities manage in the region. Many countries remain dependent on energy supplies and traded goods that are carried across the region. Those who are geographically located in the region have a primary interest in the security of the ocean, which is more often than not linked to their economies and livelihood of their people." Unquote. These are the words of our Prime Minister. In, in the ever-changing global marketplace, where goods and services are required to be channeled across the world swiftly for the benefit of consumers, market and service hubs have become an essential component in the ever-growing global network of trade and business. As a result, just like in the ancient world, even more hubs are required to drive trade and commerce, contributing to prosperity along the way. However, we all recognize that such hubs require certain specific and important qualities and characteristics to be successful. First, appropriate infrastructure is essential. Human talent and skill, resource to support, easy and quick access, and all these are essential ingredients or components. Most importantly, a hub city or nation must provide a stable and peaceful space. On the basis of such qualities, there are several hubs in the world that are recognized as important. New York, London, Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong, and several others. All with, but all with bustling ports nearby. A port has become important for a hub. Centered on the city of Colombo, and its well-established deep-water port, Sri Lanka now has the potential to assume such a status. Kalabu port already is the busiest transshipment port in South Asia. Over 70% of, of, of cargo transshipped in the port is for India, which lies just 20 miles away from Sri Lanka, adding shipping efficiency to the export-import trade in India. And Sri Lanka is situated in the sea lanes connecting with other main growth engines in the Indo-Pacific like China, Indonesia and Vietnam, as well as well-established economies like Singapore, Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand. Meanwhile, Sri Lanka seeks to broaden the existing Indo-Sri Lanka free trade agreement. In fact, the free trade agreement between India and Sri Lanka was the first for both countries when it was signed in 1998. Sri Lanka enjoys a free trade agreement with Pakistan, 
and is now working towards such agreements with China and Singapore. A hub requires infrastructure of, infrastructure of quality. Colombo Port has recently expanded to become a deep water hub port with capacity to berth the largest container ships in the world. The newly built deep water Hambantota port near the ever busy east-west sea lane is already engaged in vehicle transshipment and is an ideal location for, for a commercial hub with export industries. Ladies and gentlemen, after almost 30 years of conflict since 2009, peace has been consolidated in Sri Lanka. Our democracy, the oldest modern democracy in Asia, has been reinvigorated after a peaceful and people-led political transition in January 2015. The unity government comprising of two main political parties in the country has bolstered the age-old democracy by firmly re-establishing the independence of judiciary and combating corruption and allowing a free and vibrant media to flourish. In addition, the government is working with all stakeholders in the country, as well as the international community, and in particular with the United Nations, to establish mechanisms for truth-seeking, justice, reparations, to give solace to all those who suffered during the long years of conflict. And with a view to promoting reconciliation with the firm objective of guaranteeing non-recurrence. The government has embarked on further constitutional reforms to address the requirement of a modern, progressive nation that promotes social justice and social responsibilities. Coupled with political transformation, the government has embarked on economic transformation that promotes growth with equity as well as transparency in business facilitation. Measures have been taken to promote fiscal discipline to ensure financial market stability. To facilitate investment that would promote hub status, total foreign ownership of a business is allowed with no restriction on repatriation of earnings. Safety of, foreign investments, safety of foreign investments is guaranteed by the Constitution with investment protection and double taxation relief agreements with over 25 countries. And Sri Lanka implements strong intellectual property law in line with WIPO regulations. It is in this context that Sri Lanka's potential as a service hub becomes apparent. A niche manufacturing destination to produce goods which plug into regional and global value chains, particularly light engineering and electronics, a location for high-value agricultural products such as fruits, vegetables and dairy, both to service the rapidly growing tourism sector and for exports. A tangible example of infrastructure improvement is the Western Province Megapolis project. This development will cover several cities in the area around Colombo and the southwest of the country. There will be zones dedicated to logistics, industry, IT, and entertainment. 
and there will be a financial district centered on the newly reclaimed landmass near the Colombo port called Colombo International Financial City. We envisage a major role for the private sector as well as a public-private partnerships in implementing these projects. For this purpose, the government will further improve the ease of doing business, which we are high in South Asia, and investing as well as trade policy and trade facilitation promotion. A modern economy requires smart people to manage it and more people to power it. Though Sri Lanka already has an educated human resource base with the highest rate of literacy in South Asia and a very high physical quality of life in terms of health indicators, we are now upgrading education, training and skills to create a human resource base which can support a competitive and rapidly modernizing economy. A commercial and trade hub in the modern world needs facilities for rest and recreation as well. Geographically, the size of West Virginia and with a population about the same as Australia, Sri Lanka is endowed with unparalleled natural beauty. Ambassador Hakani mentioned that. Surrounded by warm seas with long sandy beaches and picturesque hill country with naturally climate-controlled tree gardens, world-renowned exotic tropical forests with abundant fauna and flora, including over 6,000 wild elephants and blue whales roaming close to the eastern and southern seas of the country. In the eyes of many, Sri Lanka is truly paradise on earth. And in, and in 65,000 square kilometers of space in Sri Lanka, there are six cultural world heritage, heritage properties or sites and two natural world heritage sites recognized by UNESCO. Ancient historical sites of Sri Lanka includes largest brick building in the world in the 4th century AD and ancient giant Buddhist stupa built brick by brick. The number of tourists visiting Sri Lanka is now growing at an exponential rate. Infrastructure to accommodate this growth is developing fast with hotels of several international hospitality chains engaged already in this effort. Sri Lanka's cultural traditions that respect the environment are embedded in the psyche of our people. Environment today is a very important aspect in, in countries' well-being and tourism for everything. This creates a ground cell of public opinion in favor of sustainable development. Sri Lanka is committed to achieving 20% renewable energy usage by 2030, over and above the current 35% of hydropower. Environmental sustainability is central Sri Lanka's development plan. Sri Lanka has had direct experience with several aspects of international migration. About 10% of Sri Lanka's work, Sri Lanka's, about 10% Sri Lankans work as temporary migrants abroad, and many more have settled permanently in developed economies. As a result, the country has gained experience in dealing with associated opportunities and challenges. As Sri Lanka becomes fully integrated into the world economy, as a hub in the Indo-Pacific for shipping, aviation, trade and commerce, as well as the financial and service industries, 
this experience can be leveraged to manage and augment the human resource base as required to be compatible with industry requirements. Hub requires manpower to succeed. In the current international environment, where many locations are becoming insecure and volatile and environmental challenged in comparison, Sri Lanka is a country at peace and has consolidated democracy and revived economic growth with the emphasis on green and blue economy. Ladies and gentlemen, Sri Lanka now stands ready to play its full role as a responsible member of the world community, as a hub nation in the Indo-Pacific that serves its people, the region, and the world beyond for common prosperity. Thank you. Okay, I think we have, uh, the ambassador didn't address some of the criticisms of Sri Lanka that we uh, have heard from the international community, but I think that can come in the form of questions and answers. So I'll just open it directly uh, to the audience. Uh, uh, there's a lot to for us, all of us to chew on. Uh, as the ambassador said towards the end, Sri Lanka is prepared to engage with the international community, and the ambassador is prepared to engage with this audience. Um, yes, sir. The mic is coming to you. Just stand up, identify yourself, and ask the question. And if you're making a comment, please make it short. Uh, I'm uh, Dr. P. from Beijing Nations. And uh, nice to meet you. And nice to meet you again. Um, I just recently went to Sri Lanka. And this is the first trip. And what I noticed, I went there for Buddhist and Hindu heritage issues. But of course, what came across, and I want to ask a question about that, was everywhere the guide was so proudly showing me the things that the China has invested in Sri Lanka. Look at this great stadium. Look at this bridge. Look at these roads. So then I asked him, I said, between India, China, and the United States, what do the people think is closest to the citizens of Sri Lanka? So what is your answer to that? Well, uh, you have uh, spoken to one of few people. It's a fact that uh, Chinese are, have invested and in fact taken a lot of contracts in Sri Lanka to develop our infrastructure. And uh, at the same time, India has done the same. Sometimes there's focus on Chinese projects than what India has done. China has done a port and several other uh, landmark um, structures in, in, in Colombo and around. But India has done similar things. For instance, when the railway from uh, railway to the northern province was totally destroyed by the terrorist activity, militant activity, uh, it was rebuilt by Indian companies in a short while. And now it is now we have a train running to north. Um, and India has engaged in several important projects in, 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 uh, in the north. So we think both our, our region, and that's not all, even Pakistan has helped us. Uh, 
other countries have so regional countries have been there and, and Japan has helped Sri Lanka some projects are by uh, the highway highway to Gaul has been mostly Japanese um, work so it's uh, we feel that many countries in Asia has been partnering with us but in Colombo you see more Chinese involvement as far as Sri Lanka is concerned we welcome any country that can partner with us to develop our economy and infrastructure. So, Ambassador, I, I, your question, I couldn't, what's the question you're asking? Now, Ambassador, let me try and interpret uh, what uh, the gentleman is trying to uh, ask. I think he's concerned about whether Sri Lanka is drawing too close to China in a geopolitical sense, not just in terms of economic investment. Sure, there are investments from everywhere, and everybody welcomes investments from everywhere. I think the concern is uh, something that has been said and written about some time ago, uh, that uh, China has a strategy of becoming a global power. It's looking at spreading its wings, and certain countries, including Sri Lanka, might be wittingly or unwittingly becoming partners and players in that game. Am I correct in interpreting your question? That's the question. What is the role of the U.S. in it? Because I just got yeah. a message that the U.S. Right. Uh, we have partnerships with U.S. In fact, I just mentioned U.S. has been a good partner with Sri Lanka. We just had uh, two codes, two congressional visits to Sri Lanka, and uh, last year uh, we last we had Secretary of State visit in Sri Lanka, and uh, this year December U.S. selected Sri Lanka for uh, Millennium Challenge Cooperation Compact Program, which is as you know, Compact is grant money on the basis of developing a. Um, a project that will help poverty alleviation. So we have very deep uh, connection with US and we have very deep connection with India as well. And we have very good commercial relationship with China. And as I mentioned in my uh, statement, Sri Lanka's interest is to work with all countries in partnership and to harmonize geostrategic competition in a manner that it will not harm any, any country's interest. We have no reason to, uh, mm, there's no zero-sum game in this. We don't select one or the other. This is our relationship with countries are exclusively partnerships. So we do not think, we do not uh, envisage Indian notion to become a theater of conflict of major powers. We will do everything to prevent that. And we will work with countries for that purpose. Yes, sir. Right here. Your Excellency, my name is Gerald Heng. Uh, we grew up from Southeast Asia under the colonization of the British. We got the British Raj out and most of the Southeast Asian countries have to look towards an economic model. 
we have got Sri Lankans in Singapore. And Singapore, when it got independence, we got a, we got a foreign minister who is uh, Raja Ratnam, who is a, a good yeah. Sri Lankan. And yeah. we organized what we call an economic development model, which was modeled under the Anglo-American uh, uh, model, which is, you know, we give you good uh, investment prospects in the country, we tax you very low, we let you come in whenever you like and do whatever you want. I'm wondering now that in Sri Lanka, the, the Tamil Tigers and the Sri Lankan Lions have, have fought their battle now that you're in peace, I'm wondering, Your Excellency, what is your economic progress model in Sri Lanka? Well, uh, thanks for those comments. In fact, uh, we a lot, of, lot in Sri Lanka appreciate Singapore's uh, success in economic model, of course, but you are a city-state and, uh, mm, and you don't have a baggage that we had to carry for the last 3,000 years. Sometimes when you have a long historical baggage, We're it's... We are the third richest in the world. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. After 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> so our, uh, we, we have, we are in a region that our growth will be tied to the regional prosperity as well. We have plans, as I explained in my statement, to make Sri Lanka hub nation for that you have to have the right policies you have to have uh, you have to have the right manpower and the right social and economic policies so those are being developed those are being established but it cannot be done in one go it has to be a gradual process of liberal and transformative program so that is what we are doing for instance, we have we have uh, uh, made our tax code very simple. Only three state, only three levels of taxes. No more. So we are making a tax code very uncomplicated, like Singapore has done. We are making uh, trans uh, those who want to come and work in Sri Lanka that process easy. This is ease of doing business. So several things are being done to and. Most important thing what Singapore has successfully done is social harmony. Social harmony is the key to have uh, to uh, for economic success. That the new government that came into power in 2015 is very keen to go through that path. So since the end of conflict 2009, Sri Lanka is a peaceful place. So that's where we are. We appreciate we 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 value uh, Singapore, uh, but we have to follow our own model. Um, if I understand you correctly, Ambassador, the point you're uh, essentially conveying here is that it's always easier to write on a page on which very little is written beforehand. And historic nations and uh, totally new nations have very different uh, perspectives and contexts, and that is uh, to be understood. Uh, sometimes the Americans always used to make fun of the British uh, 
at one point in time. But America, with its relatively shorter history, uh, could actually do things and get away with things that couldn't be possible in a place which has several hundred years of history. And so that's something, conflicts included, that are part of it. Is that basically your point? Okay. Um, young lady there. And I'll come to you right away, sir, after that, because you're right there and the mic can easily move. Yeah. Um, I'm honored to meet you, sir. I'm Hajin Lee, and I'm doing internship here at Hodgson Institute. Sri Lanka has just come out of civil war, and what is the long-term political solution where Tamils are brought into politics, society, and economy, and there is accountability? Thank you. Well, uh, as I explained, we have taken, uh, we recognize winning a conflict by military means is not a win. It is not a victory. Victory is winning the hearts of those who were engaged in conflict. So Sri Lanka, uh, the government that came into power in 2015 fully recognized that. So we, uh, our effort, we have to win peace. Uh, there is no victor's justice. Justice is in the minds of people who, who live in the country. Uh, government is very keen, as I explained, to have a system of reconciliation and development running parallel. Development has no meaning unless the country is reconciled. All communities should be reconciled. So we have a program for that, which is supported by U.S., and all the countries in the world. In fact, uh, we have had a UN resolution sponsored by us too, uh, founded by US with regard to Sri Lanka's reconciliation and justice, justice, accountability, and truth-seeking process. It's a, it's a one whole lecture if I start on that path. Uh, that's a very long thing, but we are committed Let's to that. Let's not have it today. Right. Uh, but we recognize the importance of that. That and that is the way we are very we are we are very committed to have non-recurrence of a conflict again, and all communities in, living in Sri Lanka, living in Sri Lanka, I'm repeating, are committed for that. But sometimes you have fringe fringes who are very extreme, and that's normal in a society. Sir, thank you. I'm uh, Jeff Williams. It's a pleasure to see you again, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you for being here. I'll be quick. Trade is the new diplomacy, uh, particularly in the United States. And it's been no secret, and it's supported by all the empirical data that U.S. companies have really not been successful in much of the major infrastructure projects over the last five or ten years. What is the new government or your office doing to help promote U.S. companies to be treated fairly in the bidding process and the other ways and, and, and procedures um, that we've had to go through over the last decade and have not been successful. Thank you. Thank you. That's a very good question. In fact, uh, the, the government that came into power in 2015 is very keen to have transparent processes in terms of contracts and awarding contracts. Uh, so uh, that is one very important plank of the government, So to have a so-called level playing field. But of course, uh, sometimes some of the contracts in developing countries are always tied to credit. If you don't come with credit, no contract. Uh, that is where sometimes Chinese companies and some companies, or India, have an advantage. They always come with credit. 
So sometimes U.S. companies don't have ready credit. Uh, maybe that one reason why some contracts are not coming through. Uh, that's uh, that's nothing unique to Sri Lanka. It's it's. Uh, but we are we would very much welcome U.S. contractors, U.S. investment to Sri Lanka, and there are num one or two now who are seriously going to get some contracts in Sri Lanka. I can't mention that because that's not fair to do that here. I know that they are in the final process of just taking their contract. Master, two things. Uh, so China's model of giving easy credit, especially for infrastructure, uh, also has the potential of creating a debt trap because a lot of times it's they, they use the word investment very differently from the way the rest of the world uses investment. They call loans as investment, which is not always the case. So how much does Sri Lanka owe China? And are you headed towards a debt trap with large uh, amounts of uh, money received from China essentially as credits for large infrastructure projects? We have quite... Uh, Quite a, uh, quite a substantial debt port portfolio. We have a debt is 70% of GDP, which is, uh, which is at the, the extreme end. We are not yet HIPC. We are not a highly indebted country, but we are on the edge and IMF has supported us to keep our economy running. So we have that issue. Uh, but that should not stop countries from developing infrastructure. We still feel still our debt payment is within manageable proportions, but it is high. Interest payment is high. There are some proposals in terms of having debt equity swap. Those are still in the talking stages. With China or with? With China. Okay. Uh, so these are all part of an economic um, model that a developing countries will have to handle in terms of developing infrastructure, which is essential to develop the economy, which is essential to give a good deal for people in Sri Lanka who is crying for a peace dividend. Because having, having put a lot of effort to have peace in the country, People want to feel that there has be, their prosperity has touched them, for which we have to leverage our strengths. The hub is the strength we have. Tourism has been increasing exponentially. Um, it's every year from since 2009, 40% increase year on year. And it's uh, if you go to Colombo, almost every big hotel chain is having a hotel coming up. Uh, I was just in, in Colombo last, last week with the two uh, congressional delegations, I just counted number of cranes on top of the skyline. I counted 32. Uh, so that's, that's, that's a high number in a city. Mainly uh, high rises, uh, apartments, hotels. Okay. So the infrastructure is being created to accommodate the service. Our economy is a service economy. Now uh, economy has become uh, largely service. Does Sri Lanka allow foreigners to own property in Sri Lanka? So condominiums, etc. Yes, condominiums are allowed. Okay, that's, condominiums, that's happening yeah. as well. Good. Yes, sir. In the middle. Yep. Thank you. Good afternoon. Do you mind standing up so that everybody can see you? Sure. 
my question is regarding the... Introduce uh, yourself first. My name is Austin. I'm an intern here at Hudson. Okay. Uh, my question is regarding Sri Lanka's civil war and lessons learned. Um, America seems to be in the counterinsurgency business uh, for the last 15 years, Sri Lanka being one of the few successful examples of successful counterinsurgency. My question is, what can other countries glean from Sri Lanka's example? Well, uh, one is that uh, carrot and stick is important when you fight extremist groups. If you only have the stick, it won't work because you have to you have to have support from the ground. Then sometimes our 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 military our security force adapted beating them in their own game, so to say. Uh, you cannot uh, if you if you fight if you if you have to fight a non-state actor. You can't use big armaments that won't work. You know, that's of course, you have to, you have to have, for instance, our Navy adopted um, small boat squadrons to defeat uh, um, LTT small boats. Small boat can't be beat by a big boat. You know, small boat has to have a small boat. So there are several strategies that our forces use to uh, defeat them. But most important thing is, um, is, uh, you need to try and win over the, the people who will support uh, uh, insurgency. Um, and, uh, and then, those who do not, you have to fight hard. Okay. Uh, yes, sir. In the middle. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. My name is Vale Sloan. I'm with Atlas Network. I have a follow-up economics question. Uh, with the Sri Lankan government in recent months moving to privatise Sri Lankan airlines, will the privatisation of state-owned enterprises be a, a centrepiece of the opening up to growth in the Indo-Pacific region for Sri Lanka? Yeah, that, that's... Um, it's a decision that government will take case by case. Uh, some entities, some operations will be privatized, but not everything. Already, we have highly privatized country. For instance, uh, telecom is privatized. Um, so there are more facil more operations that can be privatized. Uh, we have large number of uh, power suppliers who are private. Um, Producers who will plug into the, the the national grid, which is still managed by the by the government entity. Uh, so these are things that the government is committed to increasingly make private sector the engine or the driver, and to government to stay out. But it is it is impossible to do it in one go, because you are a democracy. And in democracies, people are used to social entitlements. For instance, Sri Lanka is trying to privatize the university education, but there's enormous resistance because we have free education up to university in our country since uh, in, uh, for last nearly 50 years. I have had my education. I didn't pay a single cent for anybody. Um, so people of Sri Lanka think a social right. So that, of course, when you are in a democracy, when you are used to those social rights, it's very difficult to uh, to roll it back. So it's uh, it's pushing 
pushing the the uh, to keep the economy running and to upgrade the quality because sometimes the government is unable to upgrade the quality unless private sector get involved and drives that process so in education probably the way forward would be to allow private universities which are fee paying alongside the state universities and giving people a choice that they can go to the state university where the standards may not be that high uh, in their perception but then that will uh, is that the model no it's uh, it's like the state universities are limited we have we can admit only certain number of right so the rest go abroad the rest go to all over the world right uh, they pay fees and go right. to uh, right and some parents would think that they can keep their children in sri lanka if there are universities private so universities that they can admit so, so it will be a paying university yes. so government is trying to have the parallel system working okay. so that government can invest in the state universities also more money to make it better uh, so that's a, but that me but the government is you can't answer your question government is committed to promote ppp private private public partnerships privatize industries promote education and private education already there is in a, in a in a certain sense the school education you have private schools now they call them such international schools but and their the airline schools. is about to be privatized we have we are planning to do that you yeah. sir yeah Hi, my name is frank howard uh, nice to see you ambassador uh wanted to speaking about education and talking about uh about people going overseas and getting their education are they coming back to sri lanka are they coming back and becoming part of a workforce that is uh, allowing for your economic development and for you to become a global player and particularly one in the indo-pacific region um at this point not enough come back and uh, we would we would welcome more people coming back but those who do well when they go abroad they don't return because they are absorbed by the economies of those countries this country is a good example uh what cost they absorbed for here how many sri lankans in the we estimate about 300000 350000 sri lankan americans uh, both course but mostly who come for higher education uh, especially those who are in science field uh when they do well there are opportunities in this country and they look at okay what what do i get in feel back at home versus what i get here uh so we have that issue at this point many who follow science science fields can easily follow find work in this this country or in the western world and they are the last to return whereas those who do humanities do return mostly Uh, so we have that challenge and our expectation that's why we are very keen to upgrade our economy in a manner that we can absorb and provide opportunities for those sri lankans who have gone abroad and studied and have something to do in sri lanka so it's a it's a question of economy not being mature enough to absorb those who are returning on the one hand and the other economies paying better for those who have gone abroad is on the other uh right in the middle Yes, the gentleman here. And we'll try and wind up in the next few minutes. So let's have a few questions quickly. Uh, Satu Lemay from the East West Center. Thank you, Ambassador, for your 
talk. The gentleman asked the question I was going to ask about diaspora, but let me drill it just a little bit. During the Civil War, obviously, uh, your government was very concerned about diaspora activities, supporting the uh, Tigers, et cetera. I wondered if you could say a little bit more detail about what the Sri Lankan government is doing now uh, in the reconciliation process to the diaspora communities, quite apart from trying to attract remittances. Yes, I'm glad you asked this question because that's a one of the challenges we face. We feel, I'm being very frank here, that uh, some of our diaspora communities, not all, who are well settled in outside Sri Lanka, those who are most active are at the extreme ends of, the, of their weaves. In other words, uh, when Sri Lanka is becoming very moderate, people living in Sri Lanka, all communities, those who left the country sometime back during the conflict still remains very extreme in their weaves and it makes our work a little more tough to implement what the government is doing at home in terms of finding in, in, in terms of promoting reconciliation. So some diaspora groups, both both ends, are taking very extreme positions, and they uh, they are not they are not uh, for them. They haven't yet absorbed in my view, the fully what is going on back at home. And the need to be moderate, need to be patient, need to look to the future is not yet there among some, not the majority of diaspora groups, I must say. So there is that uh, those extreme positions are not very helpful to us. So we actually uh, like to appeal to them that uh, they need to be moderate. They need to have some faith in people living in Sri Lanka, uh, those who have chosen a government that will provide them reconciliation and development together. Nice to see you, Ambassador Hakani and I lived in Sri Lanka at the same time yes, we did. many years ago, and uh, subsequent years I've been an investor in Sri Lanka, which brings me to the two beautiful pictures here. Prior to the election, um, there was no doubt that the Chinese would finance the port. Since the election, the Chinese want their money back. <laughs> uh, so who's going to finance this port? I agree with all the statistics, you know, about Colombo being the hub and, and et cetera, et cetera, and that it's necessary. But who's going to finance it? Um, no, I think, uh, let me put things in a very uh, simple, but in a very proper, correct perspective. Colombo port has nothing to do with China. Colombo port is self-sustaining port, and it is, it is very busy port. There is only one pier run by, by, it has several piers, several keys, run by private operators. One pier only Sri Lanka Port Authority, although Sri Lanka Port Authority controls the whole port, there are several keys, several piers. Hong Kong company runs one pier and there are other, other companies. And in the east, you now there's one new, new pier is coming up. In fact, most probably an Indian company will get that pier. So Colombo Port has no Chinese money. It is running on its own. 
it is uh, it is uh, it is like any other port in the world where the port is controlled by the country but several piers are run by different companies it's it's a very efficient port and uh, it's the turnover time is i have seen to myself massive uh, container ships come and within 24 hours they are gone so it's a, it's a very it's it's a, it's a it's a running port uh so there is hambantota port was built by chinese funds and it is still not fully operational and most probably sri lanka will decide to make it a commercial port on the basis of a joint venture most probably with a chinese company but nothing has been finalized but if it if it becomes a commercial port that is commercial port for everyone it will it will be uh, it will be under sri lanka's control but a joint venture so uh, so that this idea of china control in sri lanka's infrastructure is far fetched there's nothing like that um whereas debt to china is a fact and debt to uh, world bank is a fact debt to china so there are we have we have debt to and we have debt to wall street we have uh, every year we run we we float our bonds in wall street and it is oversubscribed always there's there is trust in our economy b plus rating is given by fitch so uh, so we have debts to wall street but nobody talks about that <laughs> so uh, in mo- modern economies are like that modern economies have debt and i i believe this country too has debt so uh, so that's how that's how it, it is so we are no we are Every no individual no in this room probably has some debt as well uh <laughs> last couple of questions yes Uh, Nalanthi Samarnaka from CNA. Uh, Ambassador, uh, you mentioned China and Hambantota. A lot of people focus on that. But I was curious about uh, Middle Eastern tourism in Hambantota. You see a lot of tourists from the Middle East, uh, the, some of the aircraft aircraft. Uh, that fly into the uh the airport in Matala uh from the Middle East. I wonder uh how how concerted an effort has the government made toward trying to get tourism from Middle Eastern countries as opposed to, you know, from the Pacific. Um uh, Nilanthi, I think uh Hambantota port used by Middle Eastern carriers have nothing to do with tourism per se. It is just that Hambantota Hambantota airport Hamadra airport is still running at uh, at almost not running we have to accept that it is only few few aircrafts come for for a day and uh, there is of course there's Shangri-La hotel has come up in Sangbangtota now it is running what hotel is that Shangri-La okay Shangri-La has one in Colombo coming up one in Hamadra is now operational and uh, they have just started their golf course so we hope in time to come there will be tourists from far east who are... so uh, that region tourism is just picking up once it is once it starts we have infrastructure ready we have the airport we have the port and uh, it is now waiting to take off but i haven't seen middle eastern tourists as such in hambantota but i have seen lot of them in colombo i've seen lot of them in colombo um you know it's easy to identify them they are, they have special garb and there are quite a few families who are there so 
that's my knowledge about that. With the those aircrafts who are coming is is coming to use the hum. But Hambantota Airport is also still government is trying to see how best we can use that other than having few aircrafts landing. If the port becomes very um, very uh, uh, port becomes once again very vibrant, not once again port port becomes very uh, uh, highly operational, then the airport can become too. And uh, airport can be a window for for greater tourism in time to come in the region, but it's still at early stages. So I'm taking the last question, and I'll give try to give it to somebody who hasn't already asked one. Otherwise, I'll come to you. But first, let me see if there's somebody who hasn't asked a question and has one. Okay, then you can have the last question as you had the first one. Uh, the reason I want to ask this follow-up question because I was quite concerned after spending a week in Sri Lanka. Can you do this for me? Take India, China, and U.S. Tell us in numbers how much their investments are in Sri Lanka. How many billion dollars, for example, by China? How many billion dollars by U.S.? How many billion dollars by say India? And then tell us briefly the terms of their investments. What I was shocked to hear that when China is building infrastructure in Sri Lanka, they bring the Chinese workers and they are doing the work. So it is like just doing, uh, supporting the employment back home in China. And then what I was also told, many Chinese are allowed to stay behind. So I said to my guide after hearing this for several almost a week, it looks to me China is going to do what East India Company did to India. So am I too paranoid about this? Would you give us a little bit more objective assessment? Well, I start with the, I start, you have several questions. So I think it's good that you ask this so that I can, uh, I can give you information that I know of. Number one. It is true that Chinese bring their workers on some projects. One reason is we want the project to be done quickly. And they bring workers, they do the project, they go out. No Chinese stay behind. That is not true. Chinese do not stay behind and they're not allowed to stay behind. In fact, uh, when they build the airport and the port, they had some workers coming. They were in the camps. There were jokes about the camps, but they, they were in the camps, they did the work. In fact, I had to give, I had to compliment Chinese for one thing. When they take a project, if the project is four years, they will finish in two years. So we like that speed of delivery. No Chinese stay back. But, but there is Chinese tourism. Chinese are coming as tourists in large numbers. They have, they, more numbers go to Maldives, but some go to, come to Sri Lanka as well. So that is one. Second thing is about your question about the, the investment. The biggest investor in Sri Lanka is India, not China. China is, China is doing contracts to build infrastructure on loans and on some grants. For instance, Colombo, there is a theater built by China on a grant. Um, so there are grants and loans. Investment by China is not as high as India's investment. Take for instance, 
in Sri Lanka, there are CEOs of foreign national CEOs of various companies. Sri Lanka is becoming a, now, a, now a place for many companies to set up their even quarters, headquarters region or operations. Out of the 50 CEOs in Sri Lanka, 45 are Indians. So there is, uh, paranoia is not on the part of Sri Lanka, but I don't think anybody should be paranoid about what is happening in Sri Lanka, because Sri Lankans themselves are very careful to protect Sri Lanka in a manner that we become a hub in the region, but not a troublemaker in the region. But we have a resource in China's ability to develop infrastructure, to do business, and to develop commercial relationship. So that's a resource we are tapping onto. Many countries do that. India does that. But, uh, and I think yeah, Chinese projects in India is bigger than in Sri Lanka. They do more in India. And I think that the Chinese pattern of defining, at least in public statements, etc., loans as investment causes a lot of confusion. I just Googled, great resource always, while being a moderator, you can always do that. And I checked the numbers for you. And actually, there was $1.5 billion FDI, foreign inv direct investment, in Sri Lanka uh, last year. Uh, and... Uh, Hong Kong was the single biggest source, about 160 million, not billions. Uh, then Mauritius, which is probably Indian investment coming through Mauritius, uh, companies that are registered in Mauritius, was next. Uh, the Netherlands was the third major source of investment. And China uh, was the fourth, followed by India. The Mauritius investment and possibly others could also involve Indian companies that operate from those sources. So and none, nobody has billions of dollars of investment in Sri Lanka at the moment. But if you are willing to put it in, I'm happy to be the broker <laughs> and work with the ambassador to make it happen. Because at Hudson, we like private investment and the private sector. So thank you all, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Ambassador, for a wonderful discussion. Uh, I am sure that there are many issues relating to Sri Lanka people want to continue to discuss. And I'm sure, Ambassador, you will always be accessible to all those who want questions answered. Thank, thank you. Thanks for your opportunity, and thanks for everybody for coming today.